This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, produced by, and performed by me, Brad Lawrence, uh, still doing it from a tiny little side room of a tiny little Brooklyn apartment uh, during a pandemic with children playing outside and sirens going off in the distance. But still, I thank you for coming back every week to hear a new episode of Maxine's Ongoing Adventures. And so, with no further ado, here we go to the next episode of Maxine, The Planet's Unknown. This is episode 15, chapters 31, 32, and 33. Chapter 31 Fortunately for Sumner, if the planet was deliberately doing these things, and so far as he was concerned, that was the safest working assumption at this point, hurling flaming debris at something person-sized from the upper atmosphere is hardly a thing of precision. Most of the smoldering wreckage actually overshot him, landing somewhere ahead of his position by quite a bit. Of course, he was running full bore when the remains of the ship began to smash into the stream and banks ahead of him. He slammed on the brakes so hard he almost went careening forward into the gravelly slope. He got his feet under him at the last second, turned, and was almost creamed by a flaming piece of navigation interface. Because most does not mean all, there were a few near misses. Mostly small snuff, shrapnel from the hull, a piece of the frame, a toilet cratered with such stunning force not more than a few meters from where he was standing that it showered him and thrown up dirt and stream water. Then, the cryogenic chamber hit. Sumner had been jackknifing about, dodging a hail of hot metal cinders, when he heard a whistle like a bomb in an old war movie. He looked up. All he saw was the shadow, really, but that was enough. He didn't so much as dive out of its path as fall out of it. He landed on his butt in the stream, and where he had been standing only a few seconds ago one of the hibernation capsules that he had last seen being piled into the commissary by the military personnel slammed into the creek bed. When it hit, the force crumpled, compressed, and split the thing. It discharged its contents. A spiraling torrent of human flesh, liquefied internal organs, meat and muscles shredded by the shattered bones inside it and the explosive pressure of the impact, Sumner was suddenly showered in human blood and human gore. It took a full minute for Sumner to regain his senses enough to realize that he should be losing his shit. He resisted and his control held, but just barely. Still, there was a horror-induced urgency that got him onto his feet and splashing quickly to a deeper part of the stream and submerging himself completely. He didn't check himself for injury. He didn't wait to see if more was coming. 
There was no other priority that could have superseded the need to get whoever was on him off of him immediately. He came up out of the water, blood and viscera still clinging to him in places. For a hot second, he frantically scrubbed at the bits that caught his eye. There were teeth on him. There were bloody clumps of hair and scalp and skull on him. An eye bobbed up and down in the surface of the water, and he thought he was going mad. Then he stopped. He looked up at the sky and took a deep, quavering breath. Maxine, he could not do this now. If he survived this, there would be time to freak out on the other side. Right now, his mission remained the same. Find his daughter. Get her back to the city section of the Contiki, which was still sitting in that field with all the civilians inside, and stop them from dying. He had not been in time to save the command crew or the military personnel, but the citizens were still back there. And if there was any hope for them at all, he was it. There was no time to sit here and try to deal with something that there was no conceivable way of dealing with. Just move. He started putting one foot in front of the other. It seemed the rain of fire had stopped. That was something, at least. But as he trudged through the wreckage, through the charred bits of human beings, people he had just been interacting with in the now vaporized command section of the Contiki, through the blackened chunks, pieces of uniforms scorched and bloody, a couple of the seats from the bridge, he found himself wondering if the planet had missed after all. There was a sickening, stifling heat coming off of everything as so much of it, and much of it human, was still on fire. He came around a bend in the stream. More cryogenic chambers. These had not exploded like the one that had landed in front of Sumner. Bad bounce, he guessed. Most of them were dented and smoking. Some of the front windows were smeared red with the blood of whoever had been inside. But all of them were somewhat intact. They had really built these things to take a beating, Sumner thought. But then he guessed it was a pretty big ask for someone to render themselves so unconscious that they could not wake up by natural means and then let themselves be hauled around space unless you could assure those people that they would be well protected. Still, everything had their limits, and as he passed by one that was embedded in the ground as if it had been shot from a cannon, he figured that these had reached theirs. The one that had showered him in blood certainly had, at any rate. And even if the ones he was seeing now had remained largely intact, the humans inside had not. Then, he found her. 
he came across a hibernation coffin floating in a deep eddy in the stream. As battered and blackened as the others he had passed, when he chanced to glance in, inside was the lieutenant, the one who had pointed the gun in his face, the one who had saluted him as he left. He guessed they'd all taken back their hibernation units at some point. She had a gash in her forehead, and there was a lot of blood. But otherwise, she looked almost peaceful. She looked at rest. Sumner placed his hand on the capsule and looked downstream. When this was over, when they'd got to the other side of this, whatever that might look like, he would get a detail together to come down here and give these people a proper burial. He looked down into the capsule at the woman inside and made that silent promise. And then she opened her eyes. Chapter 32 Lieutenant Jessica Laurent had been 19 when she'd been sub-zeroed. She was 32 now, an age she had reached in six-month to one-year increments and an age that meant that everyone she'd known back home was long since dead. She had chosen this life. At 17, when she left for basic, she had been fully confident that if she never saw her bully of a father and her weakling of a mother or her basket case of a sister ever again, it would be too soon. She'd been so confident, in fact, she'd signed a contract that guaranteed it. And when asked on the intake form if she wanted messages from relatives to be held in archive for her to open upon her waking rotations, she had checked no contact. There had been years when she had regretted that decision a little bit, just a little bit. She had wished she could have known how her mother had fared. Had she ever gotten out, gotten free before she died? Had her sister found happiness? By the time she wondered these things, though, she was too far out and had no way to track down all the loose threads she had left behind. Her mom had cried when she'd told her. Her father had not. Her father, by that time in his third decade in the Martian military, having achieved the venerable NCO rank of Sergeant First Class, had smirked and said, do you think wearing that fake uniform is going to make it feel less like running away? It would have stung less if he'd flown into one of his characteristic rages. That she'd been prepared to handle. All through her childhood, he had screamed himself hoarse and red-faced whenever anyone wasn't doing the thing they should be doing or had done whatever he had expected of them but had done it wrong which was the only way anyone ever did anything in his estimation. And, if you sought to explain yourself or offer any kind of reasoning, you would get the back of his hand and be put on disciplinary duties around the house. For your insubordination, of course. Not because he was a psychologically defective tyrant who should have been at-mode. At-mode 
was a special kind of murder that originated on Mars. It meant putting someone out of the habitation dome so that they would die from exposure to Mars's less than hospitable native atmosphere. It was somewhat popular with organized crime and extremely popular with writers of Mars-based crime drama VRs. Laurent had never at mode her father. She had, over the years, fantasized many scenarios in which he was just a little more violent, just a little more demeaning, and then maybe, but mostly, he had just screamed and cursed and cursed and screamed and told you how worthless and awful and unworthy and stupid you were every single day, except the day she left. The screaming and the violence had broken her mom and her sister. At least, that was how she remembered it. As she got older, she began to question the judgments of her 17-year-old self, but nothing was more too late than that. But they had never fought back, and she had. She'd gotten the worst of it until she got old enough and tough enough to give it back almost as good as she got it. And the whole time, her mother and sister would just watch. And while she was on the floor, she would stare up at them through the red haze of her rage, and she would see the look of terror in their eyes, and they were sheep to her. And when she got old enough and strong enough to put some real muscle behind her own rages, when she got to the place where she could haul herself off the floor after he'd put her there and stand the fuck up again... She remembered that was when the fear in her mom and sister's eyes had changed. Because every time she got off the floor, they were a little more scared of her too. Then it was just her father and her and the sheep that sat by and watched these two titans of rage as they went head to head. She was like him. And that made her hate her father all the more. It made her hate her mother and sister the most. Where did they get off being the blameless victims? Where did they get off leaving to her the burden of standing up, of adopting the fury that made fighting back possible? She had to take him into her, become him, because they were too pure, too weak, too hopeless to ever do it for themselves. She had done it because if no one did, he'd reign unchallenged forever, and they would always be at his mercy. She had not intended to abandon her mother and sister to her father's temper. When she had walked in to inform them that she had just completed her intake for the NHI private security detail, she had walked in with a guard dog X-150 retractable tactical baton in her pocket. She knew what he thought of private military. She figured he'd fly into one of his rages, perhaps the rage to end all rages, once the words left her mouth, and then, surely, he'd come at her. And when he did, 
she would beat him until his brain was jelly with that guard dog X-150. She let him get in one good shot, enough to draw a fresh bruise and maybe some blood, and then she would take him down. And when the cops arrived, she would make a case for self-defense after a long history of violence, and then she'd be off to the stars free and clear. This is the kind of plan that makes absolute sense to a 17-year-old. But he just stared at her. He smirked, and then he told her she was a coward. Her mom stared at the wood grain in the kitchen table, tears running down her face. Her sister had never even left her room. Laurent had turned and walked out, never pulling the baton from her pocket and never looking back. She had gone directly to a training facility of Olympus Pro Tech, a private security firm with an exclusive contract to NHI. NHI would provide her with a job and an income and a retirement plan. Olympus Pro Tech would provide her with her first real family. The basic training program was two years in duration, and a recruit spent the full two years and ideally their entire colony ship contract with the same 18 to 20 people, the class they had been recruited with. Occasionally, there would be a conflict someone would not fit. Rarely, that person would be promising enough as a prospect to transfer to a different class group. Usually, though, they just washed out. When you were going to spend a hundred years or better with the same 18 people in a situation where only those 18 people could possibly understand your unique situation, cohesion was essential. That was why people who excelled at fostering that sense of cohesion in the people around them graduated from the two-year training as NCOs, lieutenants in charge of their unit. Laurent had excelled at cohesion. Some people come out of angry or isolated childhoods having learned to do without human connection. They cauterize the conduits that would otherwise allow empathy and bonding and camaraderie to infiltrate a person's emotional life. They survive by making sure that they cannot be emotionally disturbed by the needs and demands of unreliable others. Great numbers of this type of person have found their way into the world of privatized military organizations over the years. But the psych professionals that consult on who should be recruited for what would never assign that type to a colony ship detail. Those people were assigned to the more solitary and often more wet work. The best possible candidate for a colony ship detail was someone like Jessica Laurent, someone whose estrangement from her own family meant that she had no one to keep her tied to the world she was leaving behind, and someone for whom the lack of such attachment had created a corresponding hole in her life that she was, consciously or otherwise, desperate to fill. Olympus Protech filled that hole with 17 other people Jessica's own age who were waiting for someone a little smarter 
and a little more decisive to point them in a direction. Someone who had spent her entire life wanting to be the older sister her home life had prevented her from being. Olympus Protech had given her 17 figuratively younger siblings to replace the broken one she had walked out on, and she had thrived in the role. And she had done so with barely a hint of her father's divisive rage. She entered the program as a raw recruit like all the rest. She graduated as one of two lieutenants. In that role, she was her unit's protector and voice, dealing with both the civilian world and the command deck officers on their behalf. She was also their confidant and their advisor. She listened to their problems and their concerns. She made recommendations that were based on sincere interest and paying close attention to the person who had come to her. She was also their commander and disciplinarian. She doled out punishments for infractions, and she chose those punishments based on the proportion of the infraction and what she knew would be constructive for each individual recruit, and also what would make them buck. Below her, she had a staff sergeant, a sergeant, two corporals, and twelve privates. Her father would have said all of these ranks were bullshit. He would have said that in a real military, a lieutenant is not an NCO at all, and that there were ranks and privileges and responsibilities peppered up and down the roster that were tied to military traditions that went all the way back to Napoleon, further sometimes. He would have said they had stuck all this in a blender because it didn't matter to them anyway. Because, at the end of the day, they weren't soldiers, they were just armed thugs playing at being soldiers. And to Jessica, knowing that this was what her father would say, just made him one more among the people in the outside world that she needed to protect her people from. It made her double down on every aspect of her life with her unit. She knew everything about her soldiers. She knew their hometowns, how many siblings they had, their reasons for enlisting. Over time, she had come to know their foibles and faults and insecurities, their strengths and ambitions and capabilities. She knew that Peterson and Juarez both had younger siblings that had died as toddlers, and that Juarez carried a picture of his dead sister everywhere they went, and that Peterson didn't like to talk about his dead brother at all. She knew that Yanata liked to draw and that it had been a choice between this and art school, but art school had seemed like an indulgence to a kid from a mining outpost. She knew that Sims, one of the corporals, was in medical journals as one of the first people to go through a gene therapy to correct a nut allergy. He'd been a teenager, and before he'd had the procedure, he'd almost died from anaphylaxis four times, before the age of ten. His parents had not been very good at keeping an eye on the situation, or on anything else. He also wasn't sure if they knew that he had A, enlisted, or B, left Earth. She also knew that Sims had a crush on Sergeant Everett and that Everett did not return those feelings. She knew all of this because she had made it clear that everyone under her command could come to her with anything, and they did. 
They were teenagers away from home, some for the first time, and they were gearing up and being taught to fight and kill before they would be shot halfway across the galaxy. They needed someone to tell all of their fears to, and hearing their fears made Laurent forget her own. Reassuring them reassured her. Over the course of two years, they had become a family. All of them finding their role in the team. All of them learning to fit together as a unit. When they came to the end of training, and not one of them had washed out, she took it as a point of personal pride And the best day of her life to that point was the day she got word that they would all be assigned to the Contiki together. She had made them a family. She had kept them a family. And this was proof that everyone could see as to what she had accomplished, what she had built with this ragtag group of kids every single one of whom she loved more than anyone she'd ever been blood-related to. And now, it was Sumner's job to tell her that every single one of them was dead. Chapter 33 Mr. Humphrey's demeanor changed quite abruptly. Miss Maxine, I do not think you understand the implications of what you are asking. Maxine knew the implications of what she was asking more than anyone else possibly could. In the last day, she had lived three lives, three entirely foreign lives, from three civilizations whose existence she had never even imagined before, roughly in the space of a leisurely afternoon stroll. Maxine was a 15-year-old girl. Maxine was a worker desperate to serve her queen and save her culture. Maxine was adrift among the stars. Maxine had sacrificed everything to save an empire. Maxine sat on an enormous, spongy outgrowth in a darkened cave watching shadows play in the flickering light of bioluminescent creatures. She noticed that Mr. Humphreys had a shadow. She smiled at that. Because she understood what Mr. Humphreys was now. She wondered if the shadow was created by him or by her own mind. She found that she was breathing extraordinarily deeply. There was a central stillness that had taken over in her. She was the eye of a small and localized storm. At her edges, at her fingertips, her peripheral vision, the borders of her consciousness, there was a feeling of stretching and grasping, moving and perceiving. At her center, in the focused part of her mind, her heartbeat and her spine, stillness and ease, she was fine. Mr. Humphreys got a wide-eyed expression. She smiled. This 
was not a two-way street. She was not in control here. But something was happening that Mr. Humphreys, or the thing that was using Mr. Humphreys as a face, had not anticipated. She was unsure what its intentions had been in the first place. Clearly, it had repelled previous invaders, infections that fancied themselves conquerors. It had absorbed them, known them, learned them, and destroyed them, and all without turning its eye toward them. But with Maxine, it had made a different choice. It had chosen to connect, to pay attention. It had turned itself toward her. Had it been a whim? Was it an accident? She didn't think so. Was it an act of need, of curiosity, or was it just time after untold eons to do something different? Whatever it had been, It had not expected this. It had not expected that she would seek it back. That she would see the path it had laid out before her, and after some reluctance, after some stumbles, that she would say, show me more. Show me you. Some of this came to her from the expanded consciousness that now seemed to fill the cave to the point of surfeit. But mostly this came from the expression on Mr. Humphrey's face, which was that of someone who had not fully thought something through. There was a sense that Mr. Humphreys, whatever he was, she liked thinking of this whatever it was as the natty little badger, but she had no idea of its true depth. There was a sense that he had neither anticipated Maxine's limits nor her capacity to exceed them. It was like he had gone into this feeling, like he would toy with something that had piqued his curiosity, but then something more had happened. Some part of her wondered if he had expected Maxine's mind to simply buckle entirely. Had this been the malice of a little boy smashing their toys and crushing insects? Or had he simply responded to an impulse and hadn't thought far enough ahead to have an expectation at all? Or was it, and this felt closer to it, that it was not Maxine's reaction, or not just Maxine's, that had taken him off guard, but also his own? Mr. Humphreys had been thinking with his chin in his furry paw. Now, finally, he spoke. Mishmaxine, I am, as you see me before you, small. I have made myself small because you are small. I have shown you other small things. I have provided you with other small lives. I have put in you, who was to have only this one short small life, other short small lives. I wanted you to see you reflected back at yourself. I wanted to know what small things would do if they understood the other small things that had come here, and if they knew the fate of the small. I wanted to see if the small could be changed. 
That is all. Well and good. But, Miss Maxine, I am not actually small. I am big, quite big. You now contain more than you were ever intended to. And I now see that you are something that can know, can know enough to understand, in the way that the small understand things. But there are things that are beyond you, and consequences for contending with those things. In short, Miss Maxine, I am big, and you are small. And that may be dangerous to you, will be dangerous to you. Maxine was struck by the things she knew that this monstrous, enormous, global, possibly galactic mind had yet to realize. Maybe it was a matter of first-hand experience, but the thing that Maxine knew that this being did not yet see was that there was no going back now. Maxine looked from somewhere beyond the cave wall over to Mr. Humphreys and said, Try me. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.